and I'll ask you, what did you have for breakfast today? Uh, well, I had uh, cereal and a cup of tea. Okay, no Is smashed that, avocado. Uh, no, no smashed avocado. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast. I am your host, Jordan Michaelides, and our producer is Lauren Lepatko. Together, we're the co-founders of Neural. Our goal at Neural is to build your knowledge, skills, processes, tools, and mindset, which will ultimately make both you and I better individuals, professionals, business owners, or investors. Now, we do this with the podcast by interviewing unique individuals that have included venture capitalists, bodybuilders, hedge fund managers, political activists, comedians, tech founders, rappers, chefs, and restaurateurs, to name just a few. Our style, as you may notice, is one-on-one and quite conversational. It can go from 45 minutes all the way to two and a half hours long. I'm personally inspired by the likes of Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, Charlie Rose, Oprah Winfrey, and Charlie Munger, who helped me name the podcast and in particular inspired me to create it and build your worldly wisdom, as Charlie would have coined it. If you'd like to learn more about previous guests, just hit each episode's profile on your podcast app, or head to neural.com slash podcast, that is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash podcast, where you'll be able to find the podcast index. The first thing I'd love for you to do, which I'd really appreciate if you could do it, is subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you first access to future episodes and it will also go a long way to helping fellow-minded individuals find Uncommon. Doing so will just give us more clout for getting interesting or more famous guests on the podcast. So I encourage you to do that. The second thing I'd like you to do is leave us an invaluable review on Podchaser. Now, Podchaser is the sort of Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb of podcasts, and they've given Neural's subscribers priority access to their beta launch. So in two minutes, you can leave a review and just proceed to beta, B-E-T-A dot podchaser.com and type in the promo code UNCOMMON when prompted. Um, Alternatively, you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you're using. Or if you really want to, you really want to speak to me directly, um, you can send me an email. It's just jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at neural.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It's just at neural. On Facebook, we typically try and do live videos for the interviews. Instagram, you'll notice there's quite a lot of promos um, and snapshots from the interview. And then Twitter will have previous articles that we've done. So now let's get into the episode. In this episode, we have for you one of Australia's preeminent demographers and futurists, Bernard Salt. Bernard, as well as being a demographer, is an author, columnist, and business advisor. He used to work for KPMG as a partner and now runs his own business, uh, the Demographics Group. I think Bernard is one of the most highly regarded demographers in Australia, known by most people, maybe most millennials, for his misrepresentation of the famed smashed avocado satire piece which was released last year i think that 
statistics and raw data that are accurately formulated provide you with a holistic view of what is actually happening in your life or your world. And that may be the economy, it could be an industry, a community, or even your own family. I think that too often people like you and I are making decisions around your career or maybe your business by feeling and just finding data to support that confirmation bias. I mean, how many relatives do you have that deny the realities of climate change and just cherry pick statistics rather than the entire data set and the entire scientific community that can identify what is actually happening? And I think there's countless examples of this within your life. So hence, I think demographics and forecasting are crucial to making smart decisions in your life. And that's why I wanted to introduce you to Bernard. What I like about Bernard is that he succinctly uses data to narrate a story. And I think that too often people are just spilling out data rather than giving you an idea of the realities of the world around you. It's clear that hearing Bernard speak or by reading his written work that sociology and entertainment also frame crucial aspects of what is happening in our world um, to the point where probably he could describe accurately what is happening in society at any certain point of time and you'll get this from the interview as well. I think my own biases were challenged in this interview. We spoke particularly about um, the current view of housing and how migration is transforming how we should navigate or perceive housing as a whole and it was those same migratory migratory patterns that we spoke about um, that is changing Australia's position in Asia. Uh, and this this plus, I think, previous chats with guests have made me realize that Australia needs to really start separating itself from the US and start acting as a neutral power in Asia. And I think that's our only real future ahead. I think that you really enjoyed this conversation with Bernard and, and his other work. Uh, key points that we discussed were, I guess, how and why he got into being a demographer. Uh, by chance. Uh, We spoke about that smashed avocado article, the current housing situation, how he keeps informed, advice to those who want to get into this space as well. We looked at demography from other perspectives, how we got, um, how he gets into his own headspace and and challenges that, his prediction of megatrends for the future and particularly China um, in this post-GFC world. Um, I challenged him and asked him what he would do if he became PM tomorrow. So it was an interesting little discussion there. Um, Overall, I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation if you want to know about the future and where society is heading and how to make smart, smart or smarter decisions with data. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you check out the chat with Steve Samatino, which was episode 21. Uh, and we spoke about looking into the future. He's a futurist as well. You can check that out on the show notes at neural.com slash podcast. Otherwise, you can just check it out on your podcast app. So I think without any further introduction or rambling from my part, please enjoy this conversation with Bernard Salt. All right, Bernard, we're live. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. How or why did you get into demography? Well, it's... um, um unusual pathway i would imagine um i actually trained as a history and geography school teacher i never taught um so i did the teaching degree then uh went uh, on to do a master's in urban growth and development and uh 
I suppose just developed a head for or a mind for retaining key figures. In fact, uh, using numbers or using statistics to uh, interpret society. And in fact, uh, when I was doing my uh, my thesis on the evolution of Melbourne, it was largely done through the lens of statistics, like public health statistics, for example. And you could see the way in which deaths from typhoid and cholera and other um, diseases diminished uh, with the introduction of the sewerage system, for example. So was using the lens of uh, publicly available statistics in order to interpret how society has changed. So that was my academic background. Right. And then I fell into consulting and found that the same logic that I'd developed in my academic work applied to uh, current day Australia. And in fact, business liked it very much. Uh, in fact, uh, business um, or investors dealing with large-scale property or infrastructure projects liked that big-picture, long-term perspective of a community, it gave them comfort that uh, there was a logic to uh, to their investment, in fact. Yeah, and what was the moment where you realised you could sort of do this as a career in the private sector as opposed to... The gov- I actually started my career working as a um, research assistant in what was known as the Geelong Regional Commission, which was like a planning body, a regional yeah. planning body. I don't think it exists anymore. Um, and uh, they were commissioning studies of the of the retail uh, network in uh, the Geelong region. And I started to read the reports of this, uh, of this group and I thought oh, it was very geographic-based. That was a very interesting sort of uh, occupation where you would look at catchment areas and demographics and retail spending and so forth. Uh, and after six months or so, there was a job advertised uh, in that consultancy, I applied, got it, uh, and then worked around Australia doing feasibility studies for shopping centres, which was really you know, around demographics, and realised very quickly that uh, this was this was a um, an occupation that I could was a commercial application of my geography skills, but I also worked out very quickly that the demand for retail property in a commercial sense was fundamentally a function of demography. If you could predict the demography, then you could predict demand for shopping centres, for example. Sounds all very boring, boring and technical, but it was actually uh, a great way to uh, to learn about modern business and investment yeah. and long-term strategic thinking. And I did that for maybe five or six years and then evolved it from there to uh, the bigger picture view of demographics or Australian demographics, which I don't think anyone had really done no. uh, up until that point. Yeah, so I work at Ibis World and um, obviously dem- um, demographics and key external drivers are a huge part of what we look at. Um, so it seems like you learnt that um, by and large it was headwinds or tailwinds that could often define an industry or um, I guess, as you were saying, commercial property, as an example. Well, yes, I think I think also, given the fact that Australia is a vast continent and only 24 million people, strong levels of population growth, it is absolutely critical in Australia to get the demography right. If you are in commercial property investment development in North America or in Asia or in Europe, well, there's sort of enough people there. If you're in a London or a Paris or Hong Kong, there's there's never any shortage of spending capacity. It's it's up to you to come up with the right uh, product, I suppose. 
Whereas in Australia, because because we're so few in number, so spread out, you need to be you need to be very good at making sure that you've got your timing right and the the demographics and the feasibility right. If there is a requirement for demographic skills to evolve in any country, they would come out of Australia because it's such a critical issue in Australia. I mean, the Japanese don't worry about the demography, neither do the Chinese, because there's enough, more than enough uh, people and spending and congestion to uh, to manage that. Right. The, you mentioned Geelong, and I noticed in one of your interviews on 3AW that that was the first place that you bought. Well, you bought your first house there, didn't you? I did, yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, my wife and I uh, bought... Uh, our first home in uh, Geelong. Uh, this was thirty odd years ago or more, uh, and uh, at that time I was still working on my master's thesis, and I had, I, I wasn't really focused on what I was going to do for a career. I was just making sure that I did my uh, my my thesis. I had designs, I think, of working at a university or so, um, but uh, sooner or later I discovered that uh, really my future lay in Melbourne, so eventually came back to Melbourne yeah. and have been here uh, ever since. Yeah, the re- I mean, the reason I bring that up is because when you were talking about that, um, I think the focus was about uh, the, the smashed avocado article. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting hearing you talk about it and then going back and reading the article. It's amazing... You, you didn't really get a fair go in the media, did you, about um, that article? Because you essentially wrote it as a not a satire piece, but sort of taking the Mickey a bit. Well, and- yes, it was. It was done. This was uh, my smashed avocado article of last uh, October, which has gone global and has defined an intergenerational debate around uh, yeah. housing affordability. <laughs> and uh, the piece was done as a parody of baby boomers of middle age. In fact, it was called "Middle Age Moralizers." And uh, the piece opens with uh, "Come close to the page. I don't want anyone else to hear what I've got to say." I mean, it was clearly done as a piss take. Yeah. And uh, I said, uh, as a baby boomer going to a hipster cafe, you can't read the menu because the writing is too small. You can't hear yourself speak because the music is too loud. You can't sit on milk crates because your bottom is lower than your knees, and you can't get back up again. Uh, and then you then you whisper to each other because you could never say it out loud. Uh, look at all these young people eating smashed avocado. Shouldn't they be saving for a house? So it was done as a parody of the conservatism of uh, of middle-aged people. Mm. What happened was that uh, about two days after the piece was published, uh, someone on Twitter took just those lines saying Bernard Salt said... Of course, yeah. Uh, look at these young people eating smashed. Shouldn't they be saving for a house? What do you think about this? And the way Twitter works is that... If there is a quote from someone that they know of that says this, there's no need to look at the context to see whether it was a parody or whatever. Uh, and then it went off like wildfire. And I was quite, you know, um, even at the time I thought, oh, you know, sooner or later people will come back to what was actually said. And ultimately, no, they never do. <laughs> well, no, they don't. The people in the Twitter verse don't do that. But I was quite satisfied that, you know, what I had said was quite fair, reasonable, was a parody of middle age. And in actual fact, I think that it has, it you know, it did put um, uh, a finger on the button between defining uh, attitudes towards uh, housing and sacrifice and so forth. I think that's, that's the reason why it had such uh, an impact, because it actually unwittingly uh, defined uh, the uh, the generational divide, if you like. Yeah. And that was in October last year, and 
then uh, other people have jumped on the bandwagon and uh, it's it's gone global. In fact, you know, it's right across New York and I think the Washington Post had a piece on it just the other day. Every yeah. every morning I look at the Google alerts <laughs> and uh, you know, there's another story on smashed avocado somewhere across the planet. Yeah, I think you were saying there was like the 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 newspaper in Stuttgart was publishing it like mm. the day after and yes yeah. the um, it made the German newspapers made the Venezuelan newspapers I think before their current problems yeah um, and uh, so it's uh, certainly uh, certainly uh, had an impact uh, but you know that's what you want to do as a writer you want to have an impact and uh, the fact that uh, some people get the wrong end of the stick and run off. On a tangent, well, you know that's 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 the risk you run. If you're going to be in the public domain making commentary, then people will respond to that either fairly or unfairly. I mean, all I can do is say, look, it's a parody, uh, it's satire. uh, You you take from it uh, what you wish, uh, and uh, and move on. Yeah, I think my guest last week was a comedian who've well, last two weeks have been comedians that focus on satire, and I think it makes you examine. The realities of the situation um, from either side. So I think that sort of writing is always good. Um, I, I mean, I agree in some senses that um, um, if you look at the situation, you know, a lot of anyone who has a house right now, they're they're not going out regularly to dine. I mean, you save copious amounts of money. I live in the city, but I still predominantly cook at home. So you save copious amounts of money not going out for dinner. Um, what what do you think of the the situation of housing? I mean, a lot of arguments have been made that people should move out to regional cities, or um, you know, like as you're saying, you lived in Geelong for a while. Well, that's true. I mean, my wife and I did move to Geelong uh, in order to buy a house. Uh, we couldn't afford one in Melbourne. That's fine. That's that was our choice a generation ago. I'm not saying you have to do that. Yeah. Uh, I was asked the question. I've answered the question. Uh, that was on three AW some some time ago. Um, the issue of housing affordability, I see as an issue that is uh, predominantly a Sydney and Melbourne issue. Housing affordability is not an issue in Dubbo, in Wagga, in Albury, yeah. in. Adelaide, even in Perth at the moment because of the collapse of the mining boom, prices have uh, dropped, less so in Brisbane, uh, and even in parts of Melbourne. You can buy a house and land package on Melbourne's western suburbs, Melton and Werribee, uh, with a three in front of it. Uh, in Sydney, you can't do that. You cannot buy a house and land package anywhere, I would say within 60 kilometres of the centre of Sydney uh, with the three in front. You can be lucky to get a five in front of it uh, in Sydney. Sydney is in a league of its own. It's now a global city and attracts a global uh, workforce uh, and also the configuration of the city with uh, the best jobs hard up against the harbour um, and and the Pacific coast. It means that it's that only the most... Uh, the richest people can actually compete uh, for that uh, property. So there is certainly a significant generational issue in getting access to the Sydney property market. To some extent, that applies in uh, in Melbourne as well. But the reality is that the whole smashed avocado narrative also has resonance, uh, I know, in uh, in New York, in London, uh, at the time of the uh, the column, there was actually a debate in the Crystal Palace in London uh, about the whole smashed avocado uh, issue. Right. And I suppose the um, this issue is that uh, the housing affordability uh, matter is particularly bad in some cities. 
but it is not necessarily an issue in regional, certainly rural, remote and uh, uh, second-tier capital cities in Australia. Right. So it seems that the issue is not based on... Do you think it's not based on the financing, I guess, of con- the construction boom and you think it's more to do with demographic changes? Well, I think I think the, um, the reason why housing affordability uh, is so poor in Sydney is because of strategic issues, may, uh, decisions taken a generation ago. Sydney does not have a Werribee or a Melton equivalent. Sydney should have been developed as a Dallas-Fort Worth model. In fact, in the 1990s, where a second CBD was established at Parramatta and areas of low-density uh, affordable housing opened up on the Wallandilly Plain right. as a counterbalance to Melbourne's Werribee and Melton. That decision wasn't taken. And as a consequence, a generation later, lo and behold, actually it's hard to buy a property in Sydney because you know the configuration of the city. Uh, so I actually see it as a strategic planning issue, a land supply issue, and a geography, demography, configuration issue with regard to Sydney. Melbourne, to a lesser extent, but you can actually buy a house and land package uh, um, 15 kilometres west of the CBD in Sunshine West uh, for $500,000, uh, in fact. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not as, it's not as bad. I often see these, maybe it's my training in demography and geography, uh, and strategic planning. I often see these issues as a matter of the strategic configuration of a city. Now, there's also, uh, issues around, you know, the globalization, uh, of a workforce. If you have more and more, um, global corporates setting up shop in a town, then that lifts the bar. People can compete yeah. up the value of, uh, of residential property as well. How do you go about forming your view on what's happening? Let's say, let's say just in Australia when it comes to demographics. Well, I always take my cue from uh, the published bulletins of the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics. The census is always uh, very, very important. We have a census every five years. We ask uh, 62 questions. The Americans have a census every 10 years and they ask 12 questions. So we have an incredibly rich data source going back at five yearly intervals back to 1961. And so you can get a very good handle on the demography and social evolution of Australia and Australian cities. But in addition to that, I like to uh, fuse the demography with popular culture, what is observable in the broader community. Right. And I find that in the you know when you're presenting to business, a board or a CEO or a senior management team, they'll be interested in the numbers because they're numbersy sorts of people and they want to see the theory, you know, Melbourne's growing at some remarkable rate. Yeah. Yes, we can sort of see that, see the numbers. Uh, and it also has led to the most extraordinary congestion. So you need to marry up the, the, the numbers that you're seeing in an official sense with something that's observable in almost in a popular culture sense. Right. I learned that maybe 20 years ago when I was talking about the sea change shift. This is the the predisposition by the Australian people to congregate in beachside locations to a remarkable degree. And uh, I then made the link with the popular television series Sea Change and called it the Sea Change Shift. And then, right. So that's a popular movement 
backed up by demographic shifts and then you you have you know the perfect the perfect media term for yeah. example so <laughs> so it's a it's a popular television series and demography coming together yeah. to explain a uh, particular um, uh, new movement if you like okay and what are you reading regularly in, in reading as in what what do i actually read yeah like, do you have like a go-to that you're, you know, certain types of books or? Uh, well, I, I certainly um, <laughs> I'm an avid reader of uh, newspaper articles. I'm always browsing uh, the internet, always browsing, and then following links. You know, I'll, uh, you know, it might be the New York Times or Washington Post or the Times in London or or whatever. Or people will send me stuff. I've sort of just, you know, ferret out stuff, <laughs> uh, and am always looking for. Uh, insight or interpretation, always looking for why that might be the case. So it's not just the fashion or the trend, but then looking, you know, asking why that might uh, might occur. Always trying to put two and two together and come up with an interpretation as to uh, as to why that might be occurring. Yeah. So I guess then, if if someone was looking to become a demographer, and this they're looking at this as a profession, they're maybe doing um, you know arts geography at you know monash whatever yeah. whoever well, offers it at the moment would they would you start directing them in a way to start formulating their p- opinions in a similar way if i look at the type of people that uh have been in this space or are in this space uh in australia now and over recent years uh, we all come from different backgrounds i'm a i'm a failed school teacher failed in the sense of never taught so i'm a geography school teacher and a history right. school teacher but if you look at uh, people like Phil Riven, who's a classical economist, for example, but often with a big picture, long-term view of the uh, of the world, Hugh Mackay comes from a um, psychology background. So c- psychology, economics, geography, demographics. Uh, so there's a range of disciplines. There's no standard pathway. Yeah. But what you need is a genuine curiosity. And an ability to hold a view that can go back in time. You need to be able to show how things evolved. So you need a sense of history. You need the ability to compartmentalise. Uh, for example, if if you were to say to me, uh, what were you doing in 1986 or 1976 or 1996? I could tell you precisely what I was doing, what was on television what the mood was at that time. Actually, you could actually, I could actually step through year by year, not year by year, but sort of five-year blocks. So you've got this great sense of of uh, cultural evolution. Right. And I, I know that in speaking with others in this field, they have the same sort of ability to mentally retain how things have evolved. And so when something pops up as different, you put it into context. Right. And it pops up as a or it comes out as a convenient narrative, if you like. Right. So how did how do you then sort of I've recently been reading a lot of military leadership books and one thing they speak about is taking a step back from the line. You know, you've got your your regular NCOs and other soldiers and you have to take that step back to really get a view of what is Shaping, you you spoken before about looking at uh, the particular data sources, always reading, mm. having an imprint at a certain point in time. How do you f- make or force yourself to sort of, I don't know, stand back a bit and 
take that picture? Well, uh, standing back and viewing is is one is one way to do it. Uh, I, I often talk about um, altitude, getting okay. up high. It's almost being up on the ceiling and looking down. And when you get up high and look down and see where we are today, where we were 10 years ago, let alone where we were 20 years ago, and then it's it's easier to get a view of, well, this must mean we're heading in that direction. So when you have an altitudinous view, I think there is such a word as altitudinous <laughs> view of the world, uh, you see where we are today, where we've been in the past, and it's triangulation. If we were there and we are here, then it must mean we're heading there. Yeah. And and that logic is it certainly strikes a chord with business. Business is is tired of people saying, I reckon this, I think that. Yeah. Uh we just, you know, okay, where did that view come from? You know, you're just conjuring it up. If you can actually put together a credible narrative with figures, with examples, with evidence, and show the connection from where we were to where we are to where you think we might be, business will respond to that because no one else has a view. <laughs> this idea of futurists and whatever, and people you know, talk about, well, this is what we're going to be doing in 2050 and all that sort of thing. That's wonderful. Yeah. A CEO is not interested in that. A CEO is interested in what will happen literally over the next five years. Yeah. That's where consulting advice fizzes around yeah. the next five years or so because I can alter that trajectory. I'm not so much interested in 2030 or 2050. Um, there might be some people, but uh, certainly not in a uh, in a commercial sense. Yeah, it's often not very substantive, isn't it? When you see those sort of 2050, 2100 type views, it's just a naming of certain technologies. <laughs> it's, just, it's just assertion. Yeah. It's just straight assertion. And some, if you take it as that, then that's fine. But if people say, well, you know, everyone's going to be lost their job by 2030 and we're all going to be sitting around or there's going to be revolution as a consequence no that's that's just assertion uh, it's not it, there is no connection with uh, with where we are today or how that will unfold or why it will unfold as such yeah so um you know i'm I, you know, i'm interested in that but i'm not I, I give more credibility to people that have thought through why how show spell it out for me step by step yeah I, I know you can't do it precisely, but I want to I want to hear your thought processes. And anyone who can actually do that is streets ahead of anyone else who comes in and says, "Well, I reckon this." Yeah. Okay. Well, great. <laughs> I reckon that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, do you do anything to sort of get your head out of uh, the work that you do? Like, do you meditate or journal or go for rides or anything? Like uh, that? No, I don't. Uh, I don't meditate. It's it is actually. All consuming. There's no doubt about that. I have two columns a week uh, to uh, conceptualize and deliver, and I speak up to three and four times a week. Yeah. Uh, consulting work and meetings and media and in between and traveling. So it's a very, very full uh, life. Um, I do um, ride on a bike path on a weekend. <laughs> that's my it's <laughs> my uh one contribution to uh you know to to physical exercise um but i also am very careful about diet uh don't drink don't smoke okay um don't eat excessively and and so forth um so 
you know, I'm quite disciplined in in that sense. You do need a great sense of delivery. If you know, I've been writing columns now since 2002, so whatever that is, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, and um, there is no relenting. There's no let up. No matter what is happening in your life, you still need to deliver uh, an insight, and it is judged. Yeah. In the early years, no one knows who you are. No one cares who you are. Yeah. Uh, as you as you develop a reputation. Uh, and especially said smashed avocado. <laughs> um, people are uh, very keen to uh, point out any failings that might be there, yeah. which is fair enough. I mean, that's that's all part and parcel of it. Uh, but it just raises the stakes, so you you need to get it right. Do you have any, I guess, hobbies or obsessions that you visit? At all in your spare time or over the weekend? Uh, well, I have um, my, my family, of course, uh, two kids and my wife and two kids. And uh, so, you know, they're pretty much my interests uh, on, a, on a weekend. Uh, I certainly have a broad range of interests. And so we'll, you know, watch television or go to a movie or go to a play or an art gallery or, or something like that. So I'd like to think that I have a very broad range of of interest, but nothing in a structured sense. Yeah, because I don't, you know, I'm, I'm sort of so fluid in in what I do. I can't sort of commit to like a, you know, team thing or, or whatever. <laughs> it's just, you know, I, it just needs to fit in and around my my lifestyle. If you were doing a team sport, what would you do? Uh, well, I as a as a kid, as a teenager, I played basketball, uh, which okay. I loved, um, yeah. and. Um, uh, you know, uh, and football, of course, uh, as you did in country Victoria uh, at that time. Um, competitive swimming when I was, you know, 13, 14 uh, or so, uh, which is certainly very healthy uh, for you and very disciplined as well. You know, getting up at five o'clock in the morning and swimming in an unheated pool in country Victoria, <laughs> you know, it just teaches you toughness. Yeah. Was I that think. all year round or? Uh, no, you couldn't do it all year round, <laughs> but uh, certainly November through to March. And that was, that was cold enough in, in November. Uh, but it, um, it toughens you, yeah. I think. What do you think are, I guess, the, the mega trends over the next 10 years that will start to you know, be quite pervasive in Australian society. This issue of megatrends is is one of these, I reckon. <laughs> you can Google megatrends crossed with Australia and every organisation will have his our megatrends. We've studied this and whatever. Yeah. It's by assertion. We reckon metal, meg, the big megatrend is going to be, and you could tick them off, urbanisation, yep, ageing of the population, yep, social media, yep, China, yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Uh, so what has been the big mega trend in the last 10? Yeah. That's the way I would view I, it. I think that's what I mean because when I've watched a lot of your videos, that's what I'm sort of – I want the audience to understand. Like what is happening to Australia, which is sort of obvious in a way, but you don't realise how strong it is. Like you made a point in one of your, um, you know, discussions that – how could we possibly be such a racist country because almost 42% of our population was never born here? Or That's right. In fact, the, the Sydney population, the new figures show uh, from the census show that uh, 40% of Sydney's population, 5 million people, uh, was born overseas 
in New York, that proportion is thirty is twenty nine percent. Yeah. In Paris, it's twenty two percent, and in Berlin, it is thirteen yeah. percent. So Berlin has five million people. Sydney has five million people. Forty percent of Sydney was born overseas. Thirteen percent of Berlin was born outside Germany, and the Germans get all angsty when Berlin sort of pushes thirteen or fourteen percent. The Australians are at forty percent. We are on a different planet. Yeah. And my point is, well, if we were fundamentally racist, there would have been revolution, insurrection in the 1980s, the 1990s, as Sydney traversed from 15% to 20 to 25 to 30 to 35 to 40% of the population born overseas. 65% of Sydney's population was either born overseas or has one parent born overseas. That's two people out of three in Sydney. You can't you, you can't be racist if two thirds of your population has a deep cultural connection mm. to another country. I mean, it's it's just illogical. Yeah, it doesn't mean that there's not racism. Yeah, and incidents of that, which you know, terrible, needs to be stamped out. But as a proposition, no, we are extraordinarily tolerant uh, as a people to the extent that we even show off to each other. We are <laughs> a true remote colonial culture. Go to America. <laughs> And Americans are unimpressed by anything outside America. You know, everything inside America is better yeah. than everything outside. Whereas to the Australians, everything outside Australia is of interest. Go overseas for a holiday is better than holidaying within Australia. Yeah. And uh, we will show off to each other about ordering the quinoa salad because <laughs> we know how to pronounce quinoa these days <laughs> or duck. Uh, we are true colonials in that sense, but very absorbent and very cosmopolitan this is a fundamentally different society to the society that we that some quarters like to project of white anglo xenophobic whatever i think we came from that yeah but yeah certainly not that today yeah no i i I agree with you i think um you know there's definitely angst that comes with any new group that comes to the country because it's Mm. different but over time you know whether it's a decade or two people generally mellow well, you know, certainly that's that's the case. I think that um, there was quite a bit of angst directed to the Italians in the 1950s and the 1960s. They were on the other side yeah. in well, the my, Second World War. My grandfather was Greek and, you know, they used to be called a Jimmy Grant. So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. but uh, but today, you know, I, I would argue that certainly those Mediterranean influences have greatly sophisticated the Australian society, Australian culture, you know, cafes, bars, restaurants, coffee instead of tea, even the way we organise our houses mm. is very, very Mediterranean, very Milan-esque is sort of the uh, upper middle class uh, housing style these days. Yeah. and So going back to your points about the key trends, obviously there was infrastructure was one, health is an obvious one because of the explosion in people over mm. the age of 65, I think, sure. or 75. Um You've spoken about China and sort of this middle classification. Yeah. What What is it that you think that they want from Australia? What are they looking for here in Australia? Because the biggest uh, thing that I've been looking at is previously Chinese tourists would and expats would come on these tour groups and they would go to structured places and do structured things. How is that changing, I guess, with particularly the millennial generation? Well, I think, you know, there's... there's um there's uh, an almost a xenophobic view of, well, the Chinese are coming. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, I think that China is evolving 
as a global superpower. Uh, it will its economy will be bigger than America, according to some measures, uh, by the middle of the uh, the twenty twenties. What China requires is food, energy resources, and commodities. We provide food, energy resources, commodities. In addition, they will want lifestyle. China does not deliver lifestyle cities. So, if you are a well-to-do middle-class person living in Shanghai, then you know Shanghai is not really, not really a lifestyle city. In the way in which Moscow is not a lifestyle city. So, if you're a well-to-do person in Moscow, you actually live in Belgravia. And in London, and and uh, in fact, uh, commute. So I think that what China requires is is supply lines to um, food, energy, resources, commodities, uh, as well as lifestyle destinations. So holidays, students, visitors, migrants, uh, and investments. Right. In fact, I would see that uh, no need to commandeer. The Australian continent and people, no need to do that. Uh, just buy. Yeah, they can do it what, anyway. What, what yeah. you need. It's far more efficient yeah. uh, and a more logical thing to do. And the Australians seem to be uh, more than happy to uh, oblige. I mean, that, that to me is the, uh, uh, is the broader direction uh, for Australia. It's the, we, we shifted from a Japan focus prior to the global financial crisis to a China focus in a post GFC world, yeah, and I can see that uh, continuing for as long as the regulatory environment in both Australia and China permits it, yeah, and for as long as the uh, alliance with uh, the Americans permits it, yeah, of uh, course. yeah, you know that that to me is uh, how we will sustain and deliver prosperity, and if you think about it, the rest of the world went into recession at the time of the global financial crisis. We absolutely within a boom, went to another level of the boom with the mining boom, yeah. fundamentally underpinned by demand from China. Yeah. China has been our pathway to extraordinary prosperity. Yeah. See, the reason why I'm so fascinated by this middle classification and their new focus in China on lifestyle is because, you know, we've been doing this project for a while and we're assessing what do we do to, I guess, commercialise or do something to make money from it. And while what we currently do is really focused on lifestyle around improvement, focusing on unique people and that sort of stuff, do we go down the route of something in lifestyle and maybe relating it to Chinese immigrants or expats or do we focus on the media stuff that we're doing? And it's a, it's a tough one to decide because, I, you know, what does lifestyle actually mean? I mean, people say holidays and all these other sorts of stuff, but... Yeah, you know, I just I, I'm intrigued as to what. Well, lifestyle, I suppose, is very you know you're quite right. It's very it's a, it's a broad term. Um, so I think uh, it would include yes uh, holidays, uh, and in fact, if you just simply look at the number of Chinese cities with direct flights now into Australian cities, there were four new Chinese cities connected into Sydney alone with direct flights. In 2016, right. so this will continue for another generation, where new cities are connected into Australian cities for business, for travel, for investment. Uh, in fact, uh, going forward, um, there will be a continued demand for Australian beef, for Australian wine, for Australian um, agricultural product, um, dairy product, 
uh, as an example, the continued demand for Australian educational services. I think health services uh, would be uh, gaming services. When you think about it, uh, the idea of living in Shanghai but having an apartment here and having your family sort of backwards and forwardsing it sort of makes sense. You, you sort of you, you actually have your transnational residence. Yeah, that's that's how. In the same way that people in the Middle East used Dubai as a lifestyle location, yeah. and the way in which the Russians use London as a lifestyle location. So you float in, you float out, you buy an apartment, you live there for part of the year, then you're backwards and forwards. Your wife and your children live there, and I mean it's a it's a bolt hole. Yeah, like. it's sort of like an in between place. So I guess then. Access to that and ease of access is going to be paramount for for, for newer people. Uh, yes, well, I would certainly certainly see um, uh, accessibility uh, through um, uh, aviation linkages and so forth being important. Uh, any any restrictions that might be imposed by either the Chinese or by the Australian governments would you know, would certainly uh, limit that. But I think that. We both both nations understand that our current um, prosperity is substantially connected into the whole party continuing yeah. into the future. Whether this is right or wrong is not the point. It's yeah. not to add, say that it's you know this is desirable or that it's not desirable. It's really an observation of where I think we're headed. Yeah, and it, let's say if you were made prime minister tomorrow, what where, how do you view Australia as? you know, that in-between of the US and China. Should we be changing our stance towards China? Uh, I, I think that uh, what we would do is uh, prolong the current arrangements for as long as possible. Okay. And that means to uh, maintain uh, a source of income from China through exports as much as we possibly can, but look to America for uh, military support right. and hope that those two, ne- those two interests never <laughs> intersect in the future. Yeah. And that, that is the official view coming out of diplomatic channels in Australia that, you know, it's not one or the other. We can actually, um, we can actually uh, play both sides of the fence here, and I think that's probably the case in the, sh- the short to medium term. Who knows what lies down the track? Um, but uh, uh, you know, for the short to medium term, we have um, prosperity gains from engaging further with China. Yeah. So I guess basically let's just sit, wait and see what happens. Wait and see. Yes, yeah. kick it down the, kick kick the, can, the down can down the road. Down the road. <laughs> Especially – and if you're in the prime minister, you think you want prosperity to continue, you want unemployment to reduce, you want people to be more prosperous – uh, so that you can say, well, aren't I a fantastic Prime Minister? <laughs> Deal with those bigger issues in the next administration or two administrations down the track. Yeah. No, I had I had a very interesting guest recently. He, um, you know, I'd, I like to get people on both political sides. This guy was um, basically in charge of this Trump Australia party, I think yeah. they're called. Um, but he was just talking about how, yeah, we should be acting as sort of a middle power between the two. He reckons, though, that we should be bolstering up our military but you know well i think the whole region will shift uh will become more militarized over the next generation or so and that will probably include australia i think australia has probably uh freeloaded a bit on the americans yeah definitely we um we sort of 
run around beating our chest about how we're not nuclear this and we're not nuclear that. Yeah, but our but our big mate over there has all that sort of stuff, don't yeah. they? Uh, if we if we did not have the ANZUS Treaty and we did not have an alliance with America, how secure would the Australian people feel, and how would we feel about the need for nuclear uh, weapons? In fact, so um, but you know the reality is we do have the ANZUS Treaty, and we do have that relationship, so uh, we can continue on under the nuclear umbrella yeah. of America and profess our virtue in uh, being non-nuclear. <laughs> What what mistakes? Um, you know, I'm thinking about businesses and demographics. I always like this quote by Buffett, and I think it's when a management with a reputation for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, the industry always comes out intact and not the business. What? Well, how important do you think it is that businesses pay attention to wider demographics? Look, the, the the sort of answer you would expect me to say is, oh, it's absolutely critical. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the sort of question I get from business at the uppermost level, at a chairman and board level, is it's very, very simple. Bernard, are we in the right place at the right time offering the right product? Mm. When you think about it, that's, that is a, uh, a fusion of demographics and economics, in fact, if you're in the right place at the right time offering the right product, then you've got the best chance of success, right. in fact. And everything else is operational, you know, making sure you're, you've got the right staffing and you've got the right policies here and the right policies there. But if you are going into, I don't know, trying to think of a business on the back foot, uh, let's just say you were going into the um, printed encyclopedia business, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not such a good business to be in yeah. in the 21st century. 1980, yep, terrific. Uh, or, um, you know, you've just got to be in the right place at the right time in the in the right space. And uh, getting that right is often the hardest question uh, or the hardest uh, issue. And uh, being able to read those trends and I suppose, you know, making the call in the late 1990s or early 2000s that, you know, uh, digital phone, digital cameras were coming in or that uh, uh, that Google was going to replace uh, the encyclopedia, for example. Being able to see that early enough and thinking, is this a fad, is it going to get worse or, or whatever? Yeah. Uh, that, that, I think, is the real... Um, uh, question for uh, for business at the uppermost level. Yeah, so place, time, and product is yeah. crucial in this. Yeah, okay. yeah. You can have the right product, but it needs to be at the right time as well. Well, then what mistakes are you constantly seeing businesses make You know, when you go and see people and we're, we're talking about from a demographic standpoint? Uh, often people want projects to proceed so much that they convince themselves that the numbers aren't saying what they are, that they'll they'll say something else. Right. And this is often the case with infrastructure projects. You know, we think that uh, if we develop this road, it's going to cost this number of millions, but everyone's going to use it. Invariably, the numbers come in <laughs> and people don't use it. Yeah. But uh, you know, they had convinced themselves that uh, this was a, this was a surefire winner, yeah. uh, in fact. And, you know, there are examples of that in um, – in retail as well, 
where you can convince yourself as a board that this is the right thing to do. But look, at the end of the day, it's just it's just not going to stay. It just does not stack up. And people don't want to hear the negative case or just aren't open to uh, to the negative case. Right. It's easier to do this in hindsight, <laughs> I must say, uh, than at the uh, at the time. It takes real strength and insight, and quite some persuasive uh, ability to uh, to shift people before the fact. So everyone's everyone's an expert after the fact. So maybe we could say that people should sort of be trying to examine: do they have any confirmation biases? Yeah, confirmation. Yeah, or just just keep a uh, a diverse view, an open view. Uh, you want people to genuinely challenge. You don't want yes people, yes men, yes women, in an organisation. You don't want people who are too frightened to uh, to speak up and to challenge and to be quite bold. I remember twenty years ago. It was I won't say the institution, but. First time I actually got into a management meeting, you know, I was talking about demographics or whatever, and the CEO at the time, uh, he said, you know, we're as bold as brass in here. You know, we, you should be able to say whatever you think. And I thought, and people around the table actually did. You know, they were quite bolshy in what they thought of the project. And it must have been about a year later, I was in a government department and it was a completely different culture. The government department, the culture was very deferential. Right. Uh, and I thought, you know, the the out there bolshie people from private enterprise who were challenging the CEO would not have survived in, in this world. In this world, it was about deference and respect and, you know, well, you're the more senior person and whatever. Uh, I just was was like chalk and cheese. Now that might not be symptomatic today of how things are, but just at the time, it just struck me that the culture that is that is created in the boardroom is absolutely critical. Is it one of deference and respect and mind your place and know your place, or is it come on, have a go, right? Knock me off, tell me I'm wrong. Why am I wrong? I think this challenge me. That is the healthier way to go, right. without question, in my view. You, this reminds me. You were saying in one of your talks about um, you, you'd taken the, I think it was the Nasdaq, and you'd paired the Nasdaq to the ASX, and but not the market cap, but the age of the companies. Oh right, yes. And we spoke. You were speaking about innovation. What needs to change? Do you think in companies for them to have a go because a lot of our listeners are from the tech and startup scene here in melbourne in particular i make the point in uh my presentations uh and some of my presentations these days that uh that uh in fact uh there is no australian business in the top 10 that is more than 40 years old uh macquarie bank is the most recent 1970 or so whatever that is is that 40 yeah. It's 47 years old. Uh, prior to that, the most recently created new big business in Australia was Woolworths, formed in 1924. Mm. So you know, Woolies, 1924. Then you go to America and you have five of the ten biggest companies in America today were formed in a single generation, and that is uh, Microsoft and Apple and Facebook and Amazon and Google, whatever it is, which which country do you think is more likely to survive that innovative, entrepreneurial, have a go, 
mindset coming out of America or the complacent prosperity of Australia. We're rich enough. Yeah. No need to reinvent the wheel, dig it up, ship it out, should be right. Uh, one of the greatest dangers to the Australian people, I think, is complacent prosperity. Too good, too long. We've had uh, America to protect us, the assured markets, that stuff we can dig up. Um, you know, we haven't really had to be as innovative and entrepreneurial. We don't have a fire in our belly the way in which um, other uh, countries do, certainly America. Yeah. A lot to criticise about America, of course. What you cannot criticise is their entrepreneurial spirit. They've got the runs on the board. So what do you think we need to do? Bold, be, be bolder, be more supportive of entrepreneurship. Uh, I think we even have what I would call an anti-business culture in mm. Australia. How did you bastards get to be so rich? Yeah. Whereas in America, it's how can I do that? You know, that, that person has come from nothing. They've created something. Isn't that a wonderful story? Whereas here, uh, it's, an, it's a negative uh, view. So you could argue that this entrepreneurial spirit that we need to create uh, is something that is quite foreign to Australia. That, that would be of concern. For the Australia, that should be of concern for the Australian people. Do we really think that the ten biggest businesses in Australia, that have substantially not changed for a hundred years, they're still going to be here in twenty fifty? Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, and if not, then what are they going to be replaced by? Are they going to be replaced by uh, a uh, a retail offer coming out of Silicon Valley? That's probably on the card. So, where does the entrepreneurial energy and intellectual capital reside, reside here or in Silicon Valley? What is in our best interest? Well, it's actually in our best interest to have entrepreneurship evolve on the Australian continent, to be, to be retained in Australian companies, to distribute profits back to Australia, rather than for us to be some colonial outpost siphoning profits back to somewhere else. Yeah. That, that is not what I want for my country. Yeah, I thought it was, it was sad. I mean, the big one here was, although they're not in the top 10, it was Atlassian, but they listed over in the US because they just didn't have access to the, the relevant well, capital that's, required. That's, a, that's an example. Well, Atlassian yeah. uh, doesn't make – even if it was listed in Australia, it wouldn't make the top 20. You need $20 yeah. billion dollars in course, cap, yeah. market cap, so it's not quite there. Yeah. Uh, but again, I think it tells the story that uh, we're um, – you know, even even in in that space, we're just not quite big enough. Interestingly, when you go to New Zealand, the biggest company there is an agribusiness business, which is Fonterra, which plays on the global stage. We don't have anything like Fonterra, which I think tells a story. How is it the New Zealanders can leverage their competitive strength in agribusiness into a global business, whereas we can't? We have kept our dairy companies as a series of little boards, which were then snapped up as co-ops by foreign uh, wealth funds. We can't see the bigger picture. The New Zealanders could, and that that should that should sting. Every Australian, <laughs> bloody New Zealanders, can do what we cannot or would not do. Yeah, it reminded me when you said that of because I just finished reading uh, John D. Rockefeller's book, mm. and it reminds me exactly of that—the way that they went about, and essentially, 
you know, some would say he coerced these people, but, you know, they essentially create a huge conglomerate across the oil space. Obviously, it was broken up in yeah. the early 19, yeah. 1900s, but, you know. I suppose, you know, often it's about being able to see the bigger picture, see the opportunity, being bold, being bold as brass, as that CEO said 20 years ago, having, having the freedom of thought to actually think how, where could this go, what could it look like, what might it look like, and those ideas being creatively called forth by a an administrative structure that supports bold, left-field, crazy, creative, challenging thinking. Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. Who are the leaders in this space of um, demographics, futurism, whatever you want to call it? Who do you who do you respect? Um, well, Phil Riven, uh, <laughs> chairman of Ibis, of course, uh, started this um, 40, 50 years ago. I'm not sure how old Phil is, um, but uh, absolute um, master that started this business uh, uh, and built a global business in uh, data uh, analysis, aggregation, um, estimation. Uh, an extraordinarily successful um, business coming out of Australia. So, yeah. but then, then Hugh Mackay, of course, in the um, psychology uh, space. Interestingly, you know, the, the people that I really like in terms of uh, interpreting Australian society, you know, people like Phil and uh, and Hugh, of course, but often it's the comedians, uh, <laughs> Barry Humphreys, absolutely. Brilliant social insight and satire was able to put his finger on ab- absolutely the uh, the heart of Australian culture with his parody of Edna Everidge and, and Australia, and I think also in 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 the modern sense, uh, people like Kath and Kim do exactly the same. Yeah. In order to do that, you need to be you need to have a sense of of hitting middle Australia, right slap bang in the middle. I often, um, you know, often speak and uh, I've been on a number of um, uh, speaking platforms where comedians, you know, business comedians have been on before. And what they do and what I do, we've both chatted. Actually, it's not that different. <laughs> They're there trying to get laughs. I'm there trying to get recognition for insight it's the same thing yeah on a spectrum they're funny well, one's, <laughs> they're really a, funny. one's a laugh the response is a, the difference between a laugh and a aha aha yeah but it's the same thing you're yeah. trying to say here is an observation about australian society here is a cultural truth about the consumer market now i'm using numbers and whatever and they're just using just straight intellect an observation, which is terrific, uh, but it's the same process, in fact. Yeah, no, it reminds me of this um, documentary I was watching on Netflix about that specifically, and I think Barry Humphreys said that you'll find more comedy in your own home than anywhere else. <laughs> it's true. And he was just, yeah, it reminds me because, you know, my partner, my, my siblings and I, we always sort of mimic our parents and the idiosyncrasies yeah. of, of living at home that we used to have, and yeah. it's quite amusing. I want to jump into some quicker, faster questions for mm-hmm. you. Do you? What do you play on your playlist? My playlist, yeah, uh, classical music, okay. opera. Yeah, is there uh, a particular opera that? Uh, look, no, just you know, whatever the classical uh, uh, operas. 
know, the 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 truly great pieces of music. Okay. You think, you know, this was this was this was um, conceived by Mozart two hundred years, whatever it was, <laughs> years ago, and it and, still stands, and yeah. it still stands, yeah, absolutely still stands. In yeah. fact, uh, so um, a bit boring, but that's that's what I listen to. No, there's no no right or wrong answer. I think. What last three books have you read? Uh, last three books. Um, well, three books that you know. I suppose I. Anything by uh, Bill Bryson, um, his most recent book uh, on home. It was about th- two, three years ago. Might have been more uh, on on the evolution of the home. I thought was absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, Mary Beard's um, history of the Roman Empire. Uh, okay. In fact, yeah. um, uh, I felt was uh, extraordinary. I didn't quite realise the extent to which modern Western society. Is predicated on uh, what was done a thousand years ago, or the extent to which they were very, very sophisticated, quite cruel in many areas. But um, you know, they, they did keep slaves. <laughs> um, so those two, I'm trying to think of an, a, an, a, um, another. I can't actually think just off the top of my head. <laughs> you'd, you'd really like Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world. I think you'd quite really? enjoy that. Yeah, it's a very interesting. Uh very interesting book, right? Okay. Um, on a similar line as that, um, you know, the Roman book, right? Uh, is there a particular lesson that you've held from either of your parents to this day that they said either directly or you learnt it indirectly through them? Uh, my parents, um, working class people, and um, uh, you know, I came from very, uh, you know, from. Um, Hasn't Commission House in in a small country town in Western Victoria, and I think the thing that I learned from both of them uh, was hard work, head down, work hard, and it is a policy that has stood me in good stead. There's a lot of people along the way that had a lot of talent, but just would not apply themselves. And to apply yourself, you really do need to resist the temptation to actually have a good time along the way. Yeah. You know, you need to be very disciplined. Yeah. You know, to, to to write a column twice a week for fifteen years, uh, or to you know turn up to deliver presentations or whatever. You, it, it's not hard, but it's unrelenting, and it'd be very easy along the way to say. No, I've done enough. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, so it's not only that. You've actually got to like what you do. So you, you can't push through that, you know, boredom or pain barrier unless you actually like what you're doing. I like speaking and I like writing. You know, I, I, I'm engaged by the process. So um, like what you do and work hard. What seems... Obvious to you, but nearly no one agrees with you on. Working hard. <laughs> Working hard. Yeah, it's good. Um, everyone will say, here is, you know, you deserve a bit of luxury. You deserve this. You deserve that. No, no. It, you, just keep focused, keep, keep working hard uh, and take pleasure out of the success that you actually achieve. Yeah. And last one, if you could have a billboard anywhere in Australia, where would it be and what would it say? (laughs) 
uh, a billboard. Um, I, uh, I, 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 it'd be something around the need for uh, sacrifice. Okay. I see that as a virtue. Maybe it's my uh, uh, Catholic upbringing, yeah. perhaps, uh, or working class upbringing, that uh, we need to value the ideal of actually um, subjugating what you want. It's not all about you. That to me, and where you'd put it, well, um, I'd uh, have it in, uh, is it William Street in uh, in Sydney where the Coca-Cola sign is oh, at yeah. King's Cross? I think that's the most prominent uh, billboard place in Australia. Yet a demographer would know that sort of thing, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the place you would yeah, actually put it. Yeah, I was thinking it. you were going to say uh, like Punt Road or something like that. Punt Road in, in Melbourne, yes. But no, I think that uh, that Coca-Cola billboard sign in King's Cross is the highest value real estate for a billboard on the Australian continent. Okay. It's a bit like the Times Square uh, for, in fact, Let's not do Australia. Let's go to Times Square and put that. Uh, remember, value sacrifice okay. would be uh, my uh, my message. Now, where can people find you? Where can they learn about what you do? And well, they can find me. Uh, I'm all over social media. So Bernard Salt Demographics in uh, Facebook or uh, the Demographics Group, uh, which is my website, uh, or just BernardSalt.com.au. Uh, I'm all over the uh, the internet, so yeah. uh, very easy to find. And you're on Twitter and LinkedIn? On Twitter and LinkedIn yeah. and uh, Facebook and Instagram. And um, so, you know, I have this view that if you're going to be writing columns or speaking, then encapsulate what you're writing or speaking about and put it on social media for people to follow, comment on, criticise often. And it does have an impact. Often... You know, you, you encapsulate what you're saying, you put it into 50 words or 100 words on Instagram or whatever, and you'll get a view and think, actually, they're right, and yeah. you, you recalibrate. So I use it as a way to you know, check. You're putting your thoughts out into the public domain, out into the market, and if you're wrong or stupid or illogical, then uh, the broader community is not backwards in, <laughs> in letting you know, yeah. and rightly so. Um, what what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything particular um, at the uh, at the moment? Well, of course, I've just started up my new business, which is uh, the demographics group. So, getting that uh, off the ground is uh, is is a great challenge. Um, I have a weekly column in the Australian newspaper on the Australian census, okay. and uh, so I intend to do that for fifty weeks. And uh, possibly put that together in a book uh, towards the uh, you know middle of next year, so that we've got this great collection of insight, factual insight, largely ga- aimed at the business community uh, into uh, the Australian people. So yeah. um, a book. I'm not quite sure what I'll call it. Something like Census Insights. And are you still doing the? You've done the show on Sky Business. Yeah, in fact, uh, Sky Business. Uh, the next five years, uh, we did. We kicked that off in February of this year, and we're looking at another season. Okay. And hopefully that will um, that will come back uh, early next year. This year was a bit of a pilot, I suppose. Uh, yeah. We did ten or eleven shows, but um, it'd be great to actually extend that uh, next year. I I learned. Uh, it's much easier to be a guest 
on television than actually be the host. As the host, you're just you're a traffic cop. You're just saying, you, you know, really introduce this and ask that question. I'd much rather be a guest. Yeah, you're constantly policing the conversation. It's yeah, hard, it's hard work. Yeah, and <laughs> and you know, getting people. No, can you you know stop rabbiting on? I, I need to get off. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> so, very, it's, it's very hard. Well, look, um, I think I guess if people are following you on social media, mm. and particularly LinkedIn, I know I, I saw it back in February on LinkedIn. Then um, that might be a good way to keep in Absolutely. touch as to whether that's going exactly. on. Exactly. Yes. All right, well, look, thank you so much. Are there any last requests or parting words to our audience? Uh, no, no, just um, uh, follow me on uh, Twitter and read my columns and uh, come to my sessions and join in the discussion. Yeah. Endlessly fascinating discussion talking about uh, the Australian people. Yeah. Well, look, Bernard, I really appreciate you doing this. I really enjoy reading your articles and, and watching you, you talk, so thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for making it this far. We hope you enjoyed the episode. The first thing I'd like you to do as I said at the start is subscribe. Subscribe on your podcast app. It will give you priority access to future episodes and go a long way in helping fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. The second thing I'd like you to do is leave us an invaluable review on Podchaser. Podchaser is the new IMDb of podcasts and they've given Neural's subscribers priority access to their beta launch. In two minutes, you can leave a review. Just proceed to beta, beta.podchaser.com and type in the promo code UNCOMMON. That will allow you to get access. You can also go and leave reviews for the other podcasts that you like as well. Alternatively, we would love your review on iTunes, Stitcher and any other platforms that you use. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat or Instagram. It's just at Neural. Each week we'll have a promo for the episode that will distribute out on those platforms. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.